You're listening to Popcorn Ronin with Roger and Vince. Every two weeks, they give their thoughts on movies, TV, and anime. episodes back, we discussed a number of Paul Newman movies, and as fantastic as those movies are, and as much as I love them, when I look back at that era of filmmaking, there's another star that, at least for me personally, stands out, and that's Steve McQueen. We mentioned him on our first episode as a member of the Magnificent Seven cast, and I thought it would be cool to come back and revisit him, his career, and the interesting connections he has to Paul Newman as well. Born in 1930, he had a very rebellious childhood at various points leading a street gang and even joining the circus before he eventually mellowed out in his career in the Marines. But it's this interesting upbringing that led to him as an actor being part dramatic, part action hero, and even part stuntman. It's really this combination of things that made his career very special and kind of redefined what we thought of a Hollywood leading man at the time, earning him the title King of Cool. So, Roger, what do you think of Steve McQueen? What I always liked about Steve McQueen is that he was a a lot different than a lot of the leading men that we'd had up until that point. He was cool in that he 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 didn't have to to smirk or or toss in little funny lines or anything. He was very mellow. He was very dramatic as well. And believable in those roles. Whereas a lot of other actors, when you slap them in a dramatic role, even if it's something that you have to look at the subtlety behind the drama, like Sam Pebbles, you still see that that smirk. As much as I love Paul Newman, it only takes a little look to see that that little brash cockiness, that you know, the 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 fun behind the acting. Whereas with McQueen in a lot of the roles, you don't get that. He's serious. He's very wrapped up in the role. At least there's the appearance of that. And so he pulls off those dramatic roles that much better because you never see, you never see, at least for me, Steve McQueen, you see the role. Yeah, I get a feeling, especially with the roles he selected over the course of his career, there wasn't a whole lot of actual acting. Like he was just drawing from a lot of his real life experiences and that definitely lended a lot to the performance. Yeah. So looking at his early career, and immediately we get this connection with Newman. His first credited film role was in a movie called Somebody Up There Likes Me. Uh, It was directed by Robert Weiss, who also directed The Sand Pebbles, which we'll be discussing later. And it was a movie starring Paul Newman. So right at the very beginning of McQueen's career, you're getting this connection between the two of them. He went on a couple years later to have his first lead role in The Blob, which I considered putting on this episode, <laughs> but I decided to focus on a, a, some more prominent roles of his. And then also in 58, a very big year for his career, he got the lead in a TV series called Wanted Dead or Alive. And this is where he learned 
how to play that Western character that we saw in Magnificent Seven and also other roles in his career. And one of the interesting things is he was very dedicated to this role to the point where he trained daily with a quick draw expert to be able to actually physically do the gunfights in the movie. And it's funny because looking back on Magnificent Seven, uh, there's a great quote by Eli Wallach who played Calavera, the villain in that movie. And just how much, almost even very subtly, that McQueen can just dominate a scene. He says he was uh, behind the scenes. You know, he obviously wasn't in this uh, particular shot. Trying not to laugh out loud and ruin the shot because the scene at the beginning where him and Yul Brenner are leading the funeral procession. And when they first climb in and he shakes, you know, the shotgun shells to see if they're loaded and whatnot. And Yul Brenner was furious at McQueen because he saw that as upstaging because it drew the attention in that scene to McQueen. Now, whether that was his intention or not, that is what happened. And then later on in the film, Yulbrenner absolutely refused to draw his gun in any scene where McQueen was doing the same <laughs> because he didn't want to be outclassed. You know what? I think that it's it's partly who he was as a man. But when you hear a lot of what went on between him and Newman, especially later on, I think he knew what he was doing. And it was <laughs> it was on purpose to to own the scenes, and he knew he could, and well, he did. Yeah, there's so many actors that will dominate a scene through their performance, through their acting, you know, being loud, being exuberant. McQueen could do that without any of that, and it was the same for Newman and a number of other actors. But he made it an art form. <laughs> yeah. uh, looking at some of the other notable roles that we won't be covering on this particular episode, uh, The Great Escape, another fantastic ensemble cast that I think believe you said you want to talk about uh, sometime in the future. Yeah, we got a plan for that. We also had the Thomas Crown Affair, Papillon, which is a fantastic oh dramatic role of his, and Enemy of the People, and numerous, numerous other films. It was actually really hard for me to decide on three. I, was I had little... two that I absolutely knew we were going to cover, and then I struggled trying to pick a third. I was a little disappointed that we weren't doing Papillon. But I, that's, that's fine. Maybe some other time we'll do it. But man, that movie. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> well, that leads us into the first film we're discussing, 1966's The Sand Pebbles. The reason I chose this, because going in, I knew for a fact we were going to do Bullet, because you have to. And we were also going to do Towering Inferno, because it ties the whole discussion back together again. So the reason I picked Sand Pebbles as the third is throughout his entire career, it's the only role that McQueen was ever nominated for an Oscar for. So I felt this was is pretty much required to discuss for us. Yep. Looking at the film uh, with your lovely Rotten Tomato scores that you love so much, 88 from critics, 89 from viewers. Very rarely do you see the viewers have the higher rating of the film. It was based on a novel by Richard McKenna and directed by Robert Weiss. And this film is just loaded with various film legends. Robert Weiss directed such movies as The Day the Earth Stood Still, West Side Story, The Haunting, The Sound of Music, and the original Star Trek picture. And then, as I mentioned before, it also, he also directed McQueen's premiere. And it also co-stars Richard Attenborough, who sadly just passed away a couple weeks ago, who has been in numerous, numerous great movies, both as a, an actor and as a director. Uh, he plays the role of Frenchie, who is fairly central to the movie's plotline. We also have uh, Richard Crenna as Lieutenant Collins, who is an absolute badass, and Candace Bergen as Shirley, McQueen's love interest in the film. It takes place in 1926 China, where 
America and a number of other Western countries are engaged in what's known as gunboat diplomacy, where they're using shows of military superiority in order to affect the diplomatic things that they're trying to get done. Oh, you don't want to sign this trade contract? Well, we're going to drop a boat full of guns right in the middle of one of your rivers, and there's nothing you can do about it. So it's an interesting time and an interesting point to set the movie. And that brings in the character of Jake Holman. He's a machinist mate, a as near as we can tell, one of the best actual engineers in the Navy. But he has this certain sense of the way things are supposed to be done. And they're always going to be done right because that's his job. And unfortunately, uh, that's not always the way the crews go on some of these ships. So he's had a lot of trouble. He's not starting trouble necessarily, but just because he's true to his own sort of sense of duty that it causes a lot of friction. And I really like that aspect of the character. You have somebody who has that, I don't want to say anti-hero, but almost antagonistic presence, but he's not really doing anything wrong himself. Well, the thing is, is that he's, he's the outsider immediately. You would think that he would just be another member of the Navy just joining in on the ship. But because of how long the ship had been there and how it had integrated itself with the Chinese members that were on the ship as well, it was completely foreign to him. So he was immediately the, the outsider because he didn't agree with the way that it was being done and how lazy the actual Navy was being getting all the Chinese to do the work. So I liked that he, again, he was that you know, square peg trying to fit into the round circle. And, and it worked again with McQueen in the role because you could see the frustration that he had. It, it was right from the get-go, you could feel the tension. Interestingly enough, guess who Robert Weiss's first choice for the role of Holman was? Oh, I, I read that just a, a few minutes ago. Who was it again? Paul Newman. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> again, it's, it's so bizarre when you really break it down and look at it. But yes, the ship he's transferred to is called the San Pablo, or as they refer to it, the Sand Pebble, giving the movie its name. And being in China as it is, a lot of Chinese residents, people, whatever, uh, have ingratiated themselves onto the boat and taken on a number of tasks for the crew. And they have this entire hierarchy set up where, as you said, once Holman gets there and he just wants to run the engine the way it's supposed to be run, but that's not the way it's run on this ship. They have to keep the Chinese happy so that the Chinese will stay around and do basically do all their work for them while the crewmates basically just slack off and don't really have to do a whole heck of a lot. And that just doesn't sit well with Holman and it leads to a number of interesting relations with the rest of the crew. Yeah, the I mean they were setting it up right from the get go. You could see the the writing on the wall essentially, because and it, and it's indicative of a lot of movies of that time too. They they were not subtle in a lot of the, the the ways that they they did things. And here you can see immediately the relationship that he's going to be having with Bohan, and uh, and so when it shifts over to him training him, you you kind of saw it coming along, and again more of his acceptance of. His where he is of the people there and the people on mainland as well. Yeah, he, he definitely settles into that role of fine. If this is the way things are going to be, we're at least still going to do it my way yeah. and do it right. It's, it's his own way of accepting the odd setup they have. And aside from that, we also have Frenchie's story, Frenchie being one of the few crew members who doesn't immediately hate Holman as he comes aboard. And when they're on shore leave, a number of the crew tends to frequent this uh, – 
bar, if you will, that's also sort of a brothel. And they have this young woman, Mai Lee, who is earning a fabulous paycheck for her first her first time. And it, a lot of the crew's more humorous moments even involve all of them trying to save up enough money to be able to purchase this uh, very special evening you with Mai Lee. that as humorous? My God, even though it was well, back... the the situation wow. wasn't humorous, but the way like Ski and some of the other uh, crew members were acting about it, and it's just as a recurring plot point. Anytime money came up, that they, they kept making jokes about it. I I got to tell you, even though again, even though it was filmed so far back that they tried to lighten it up. I'm watching I actually only just watched this last night and this is one of the few films of his that I actually I'd never seen. And so I'm watching it last night and I'm horrified at oh, this. Absolutely so looking back at it, it was a like, very oh uncomfortable situation. God, it was terrible. And of course, um I mean the the guy who plays Skeech, he just he, he pulls off the role because man, you just want to nail this guy in the head. Yeah, and that that comes back around to the fight they staged with uh, Pohan, where basically Ski was fighting for his $200 and Pohan, McQueen's protege, was fighting to stay on the ship. But it it had that thing you needed where it gave one of the characters actual motivation and the other one's just being an absolute oaf and it absolutely worked for that. Yeah, yeah. But of course, you have poor Frenchie who has fallen completely in love with Miley and just wants to get the $200 so that she can pay off her debt and live her life however she wants, not being forced into these situations. And well, Frenchie's kind of an idiot. <laughs> and in typical old Hollywood fashion, falls in love inside of just a few minutes. I don't, I don't even think it was that long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like to the point where once he finally does earn the money and buy her freedom, ends up hooking her up with a an apartment in some rundown building in Changsha, which is where they tend to dock frequently. So at the point where the ship is now stuck in Changsha Harbor, in the middle of winter, he's sneaking off the boat and swimming ashore to be with Mai Lee and ends up dying because of hypothermia. <laughs> Not the brightest one on the boat. No. But Richard Attenborough did play the role very well. It was a nice foil to McQueen's character where he's the, you know, the stoic, serious type. And, you know, like I said, Frenchie's kind of an idiot, but his heart's in the right place. Yeah, but you knew that going in. Anybody with that mustache, you knew. He can't be that smart. (laughs) Listen, you look at this entire movie and look at how the U.S. Navy looked in 1927 with their mustaches and their shorts and their white socks. How did anybody take us seriously? Especially when they're marching through the streets and you see this white force kind of marching and you go like, oh, my God, people. Or when they're they're covertly – I'm using those famous air quotes – trying to (laughs) go in to go get the – the missionaries, and they're all in white. They might as well be holding flashlights above their heads. <laughs> yes, but uh, going back to what I was saying about the ship being stuck in Changsha Harbor, tensions with the Chinese people were boiling over at this point. You know, they didn't like all these Western nations essentially fighting over control of their country and their lives, and they were starting to push back. They mentioned a British gunship had actually, you know, fired in self defense, but. 
the politics had spun it, that, stating that they had fired onto the crowd and whatnot. So the crew of the San Pablo was under direct orders not to ever fire a shot at the Chinese unless their own life was in imminent danger. So you had all this political stuff going on to the point where they blockade the harbor and prevent the San Pablo from getting out before the waters lower to a point where they can't. They're stuck there for the entire winter. At this point, the Chinese crew completely bails from the ship because they no longer want to be involved. And I loved how they showed over the course of just a couple of months with this crew that's not used to actually working. First of all, the ship itself starts literally falling apart. It's rusted. It's nasty looking. And when anybody tries to assert their superiority and you know force the crew members to do their jobs – even if they knew how to do their jobs, they don't want to do it because that's not the way things work on the San Pablo. And then when you mix that in with McQueen's character of knowing how things are supposed to be, it leads to a lot of tension on the ship. The one thing that I would have liked, which is asking a lot of a three-hour movie already, but they could have filmed it a little bit differently to show that passage of time while they're stuck in the harbor. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, that is from fall through till spring. But it's... Only literally a few shots. Like, so you're really not seeing the tension in the ship because they're not even allowed to leave the ship anymore. So that tension would be boiling over and you get a little of it later on when there's a few fights kind of thing. Not even fights, but arguments. But they don't actually show that tension boiling, that cabin fever of not being able to leave the ship. And I think that's one of the things that I wish it would have been filmed a little bit more differently so that when you get to the point later on where it's damn near a mutiny kind of thing, it would have – the progression would have been there for us to see instead of just, oh, all of a sudden they've had it. Yeah, I agree. There there wasn't enough of an establishment. It's one of those things where us as the viewers, we can go along with the sentiments of the scene. But yeah, having a better buildup would have been more impressive. Yeah. So getting to that mutiny, as I mentioned, when Frenchie had swum ashore to be with Miley, uh, Holman finally came to his turn basically to go ashore with their secure mail for the embassy. And he takes a side trip to go check on Frenchie, knowing that he's not there, finds him dead. And at this point, a bunch of uh, Chinese dissidents, I don't even know what you'd call them. They're not really mentioned much. Come in, get into a fight with Holman and end up killing Mai Li, which they then frame on Holman as part of their you know, political agenda to turn everybody against the American military. So once Holman gets back to the ship, the Chinese follow them, want the murderer to come stand on trial. And with the exception of the captain – Absolutely everybody else on the ship is perfectly happy to throw Holman overboard to the Chinese if it means the rest of them can get along. And this ties a lot of the character development together in the movie of seeing that Holman never fit in with the crew. And despite the fact, uh, you know, all we know, all we hear about brotherhood and the military and all this, this group of people was more than willing to offer him up to justice, if you will. And this was one of the points, again, that I had a, a, a little bit of an issue with because of that. Had they built up that tension throughout the, the mm-hmm. that season or seasons or seasons where they were stuck there, then it would be more believable that they just want to throw him and be done with him. Because despite not necessarily liking him, he's still one of theirs just wanting to toss him overboard to be done with it didn't ring 
true. I would have believed it had they again shown more of that cabin fever being stuck on the ship all those months, then it would have been a lot more believable. Yeah. Although this was the point where Richard Crenna as Lieutenant Collins, the captain oh. of the ship, he, this is where he elevated his performance. Because before this, he, this, he had just paycheck. been kind of – I'm sorry, what? This is where he earned his paycheck. Yeah. Before that, he'd just been kind of a desk jockey, just trying to keep everything happy and everything working. Didn't really have much of an impact on the film. But at this point, where the gunmen on the ship are refusing to fire warning shots at the Chinese, saying the gun is jammed, and he just knocks one of them out of the way, fires the shot himself – and then almost whips the machine gun around onto his own crew. Just that stare. That, yeah, like you said, that's where he earned his paycheck. And going forward for the rest of the movie, he was, like I said, an absolute badass. Yeah, it was it was fun to watch him, actually. I found that he stole most of the scenes that he was in because of because of the complexity of the character. Because he, he is still a little kind of wishy-washy at times. And not like he... he Yes, he's more stoic and this is how it's going to be with with Holden, but he still is not the typical like really harsh and this is how it is for everybody. And when you're getting that that mutiny, you believe it that he he wouldn't just stand there and say, shut up, up. Oh, I can swear on this podcast. That's right. <laughs> this isn't our other podcast. But yeah, he's not just standing up and telling them to shut up and, and to listen to orders. It just keeps going and going and going to a fever pitch. And it again, it makes sense with the character. And then when he has that breaking point, and then when you see him later sitting in his cabin alone with a gun, it's like, holy crap. Yeah, he's he almost lost it, and but he's getting it back. And then you see that again when he takes off with them. It's it's his motivations his motivations are good that's how he sees it but man does he ever screw things up <laughs> well once they finally leave the harbor he decides to ignore the navy's orders claiming the radio is broken and heading up river to rescue the missionaries that have been part of the plot going on that's where shirley mcqueen's love interest had been staying with them as a teacher and they get to this blockade in the river and you're like, okay, you know, it's a couple of boats with some bamboo on them. Not really going to theoretically pose much of a threat to the ship, but the Chinese put up a heck of a fight. So to the point where – and this is one of those things where looking at it from modern day, there's no such thing as a boarding party in yeah. the modern Navy. So when they're jumping onto the other boats – and the captain is leading the charge with his actual military saber in one hand. I, I earned so much respect for the character right then and there. It was unbelievable because that's not what I was expecting. But as you said, in fitting with what we've seen from that character's development, it did make a lot of sense. Yeah, because again, he was trying. He he didn't always have the 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 best. Well, he had the best intentions in his mind. It just it. It wasn't always, and uh, and when you're seeing him and and not hiding as well, there's there's a touch of he's ready to die as well. When he's standing by that window and it's being the the shots are ricocheting off the window in that scene, and it's his first officer who's kind of like saying, "You may want to move away from the window a little bit, there, buddy." <laughs> it's like he's lost in the moment, and he's you get that feeling that he die peacefully if he was shot kind of thing um so yeah yeah after a career of basically being a glorified diplomat he finally saw one chance to actually be a soldier and he yeah. jumped at it yeah 
to the point where when they actually make the uh, land party to go rescue the missionaries, he, of course, leads the team along with Holman and a couple of red shirts, if you will. And he's the one who <laughs> offers to stay behind to hold off the Chinese forces so the rest can escape. And at this point, we realize that, OK, he has all the bravery in the world. Maybe not that great of an actual soldier because he gets shot and killed immediately before they can even escape. Red shirts is not the best analogy because of the red shirts in this yeah, one. Yeah, the red shirts survived. But yeah, at the end of the film, the queen makes a heroic sacrifice, allowing Shirley and the other crew members to escape back to the ship so they can get back before they can set the blockade back up again. And this is just a great action sequence with a lot of tension because he's alone in this middle of this courtyard with very little cover and a Chinese soldiers circling him on the rooftops. And I, I felt the fear of that scene of knowing he was going to get shot at some point, but not knowing when and from where I as far as last stands go, that's kind of up there for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the setting as well which is completely foreign kind of thing to him. So when he's kind of moving around and you see his eyes darting at all the roofs instead of down low and he's looking all over and it's like, you know, okay, you're, yeah, you're taking that shot to the left, but guess what? There's going to be another guy on your right. So you see that it's going to come and, and he knows it as well. It was, it was profoundly well done. Mm-hmm. So overall, great movie, bit long. Any movie that has an it. actual intermission is kind, of, is kind of a chore, but that's how they were done at the time, especially Robert Weiss movies. Heck, this might have been one of the shortest movies he ever made. But overall, uh, very positive uh, thoughts on that film. Yeah. And it's one of his films that very few people have actually seen, like yourself. And Candace Bergen was fantastic in this. I mean, it's, it's funny seeing her in anything prior to Murphy Brown. <laughs> because that was so iconic of who she yes. became. And so when you see her in this 180 degree character that is much more meek and, and, and well, she's quite young too. And it's, I believe she was 19 when this movie she, was yeah, filmed. Yeah, she was young. So it, it's so different seeing her in that kind of role. But man, she was fantastic in it. Absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, we kind of glossed over it, but her character gives and different perspective of what's going on because they're there for the purpose of fitting in with Chinese society and trying to share cultures. So they're very against the entire military presence. And I mean, for, for lack of a better term, that's also what almost gets them all killed, but it, it, it definitely gives you a different perspective on the entire situation. Yeah. All right. Moving forward a couple years to 1968 in what I would assume just about everybody considers McQueen's iconic role, and that's in Bullet. Directed by Peter Yates, co-starring Robert Vaughn as Chalmers, Jacqueline Bissett as Kathy, Don Gordon as Del Getty, his partner, and Robert Duvall in an interesting cameo. <laughs> it's one of those that catches you completely by surprise. Like, I don't know where this was in Duvall's career, but for such a small role, you it was a shock. Duvall's done that a lot, though. You'll be watching something and go, is that Robert Duvall? Holy crap, it's Robert Duvall. <laughs> but he's done that throughout his entire career, and he does it so bloody well. Yeah. Uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, this has a critic score of 97 and only a viewer score of 85. What's wrong with the other 15% mm -hmm. of people? Because I adore this movie. It is as cheesy late 60s 
you know, action cop movie as it gets, but by the standards of cheesy late 60s action cop movies, this is at the top of the mountain for me. I actually, it's one of those few from that era that I actually didn't see a lot of cheese in it. It, I, I really sure. enjoyed it and felt that it holds up just as well now as it did then. I mean, yeah, a few cheesy scenes in terms of like his interactions with his superiors and with, you know, the, the, with Robert Vaughn and stuff like that. But in terms of the actual action of the movie and what is going on and, of course, his performance, man, I loved it. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. And I felt that it held up just as well now as back then because I remember seeing it when I was still a kid. So, yeah, I, I loved it. The only thing that doesn't hold up for me is the smooth jazz soundtrack. Well, okay. It's yeah. very dated by that standard. You, that, that's a lot of different shows, though, where, yeah, the soundtracks yeah. rarely do hold up. Yeah, uh, and this one, McQueen plays the role of Lieutenant Frank Bullitt, who is actually based on a real-life detective, a man named Dave Toshi, who was actually in the San Francisco Police Department as a detective. The movie does take place in San Francisco. And what's interesting is this is the actual real-life detective that later on in his career would be the one to track down the Zodiac killer. I thought that and, was amazing, yeah. I mean, it's like, come on. <laughs> but beyond that, uh, McQueen copied his now iconic fast draw shoulder holster with the gun actually put in upside down, which is has become such an icon and that's just that image of him to the point where – have you seen Nathan Fillion's yes, new career I did, actually. I, actually, I was disappointed when people were saying Archer. I'm going, it's Bullet. Come on, people. Archer is trying to be Bullet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then Toshi himself was also different aspects of his career, the basis for the Dirty Harry character. That Somebody used to know. make a movie about him. Yeah, well, technically they did in the Zodiac movie where he was played by Mark Ruffalo. But still, <laughs> he's a lot more fascinating than just that one case. So our plot line here is we have Walter Chalmers, this up-and-coming politician who has this RICO case going against the local mob. And as part of his big media spectacle to advance his standings in the polls, he's brought in the surprise witness, Ross. And, of course, if you're a surprise witness against the mob, there's a lot of people gunning for you. So they put him up in this dingy motel, bring in Bullet, Delgetti, and uh, a third guy who's – honestly not all that important to the storyline, to protect him, and he doesn't even make it one day. <laughs> all they had to do was make it to the weekend. He didn't make it to Saturday morning. <laughs> but right from the beginning, Bullet knows something is wrong because, as they noticed, Ross himself unlocked the door to let the hitmen in. And you have this very tense standoff, like, a lot of the movie is very subtle in yeah. as far as its tension and its plot advancement because you have Chalmers who at this point just wants heads to roll because if he can't get Ross as his witness, Ross, Ross does die after the assassination. Then at least he can drag you know the people responsible you know out into the streets for a public whipping, if you will. Whereas at the same time, Bullet and again, it's that Steve McQueen character of the guy who knows exactly what the right thing to do is, despite the fact everything in the world is against him. He's driven to do it, and he's going to see it through to the end. And it's that antagonism between the two characters that really makes this film. And again. I know that the I can't remember was this film offered to anybody else? I did not 
I, I'm sure it might that. have been, but I didn't see anybody notable at least. But yeah, it's one of those things where you're looking at it and I try to imagine how other people would have done it, how Newman would have done it. And again, we've stated how much we love Newman. And yet this is one of those where you look at it and it's like it was made for McQueen. He embodies that cop so perfectly and ironically because of the legal troubles he used to get into. But so well in terms of what you were saying, like even though it's it's the wrong thing to do in terms of what you're allowed to do and following orders and this and that and working with higher ups, it's the right thing to do to catch the people who did it. And and he, he pulls it off. You believe it the entire time. And his relationship with Vaughn, like you were saying, I mean, well, I was reading too, like he pushed for Vaughn to take this film. And Vaughn did such a good job. Did you read that about Vaughn wanting to actually I, I, go into politics later on? Yeah. <laughs> and then That's nobody hilarious. could take him serious, seriously because of this role. <laughs> you know you're a good actor when that something like that happens. Yeah, and yet we can still allow Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jesse Ventura, but that's beside the point. Let's not go there. (laughs) And partway through the movie, a little more than halfway, we actually get to the true star of the film, let's be honest, and that is the iconic car chase. When you ask anybody what the best car chases are in film history, Bullet is always at or near the top of the list because this definitely set the precedent. The entire chase takes up almost 11 minutes of screen time but it was filmed over the course of three weeks. <laughs> this is why the movie won the award for best editing at the Oscars. <laughs> this poor guy <laughs> had to take untold amounts of footage and put it together into one 11-minute scene. Frank Keller was the name of the editor who deserves to be put on a pedestal for that work. But the cool stuff here is in – an actual break from tradition at the time, the city of San Francisco did authorize them to, you know, film on the streets of the city. Unlike, you know, I was reading similar car chases like the French Connection, another fantastic, iconic car chase. They didn't have the approval. They shot it anyway. So when you're seeing people diving out of the way of the cars, <laughs> those were actual people diving out of the way of the cars. <laughs> but, uh, and this is where the city of San Francisco was also a star of this film because it became iconic after this point to do these sorts of things in San Francisco, like, you know, Starsky and Hutch, that just because you have this terribly designed city on all these hills with these blind corners and drops, and it's like, it, it, it lends to a great car chase, but watching movies like this, I can't imagine how anybody actually lives there. It's fantastic though and like you were saying the editing you got to factor in on top of that that mcqueen did some of the racing himself and some of it was done by his stuntman so the editor had to then go in and splice it all together as well so that you can't tell that there's a stuntman in some of those shots and it's so well done that it's hard to tell because again mcqueen made a point of showing his face so that people knew, hey, I'm doing my own stunts. So it, the editing was phenomenal. Well, that's also where you get into an interesting aspect of McQueen himself, that he was a speed freak. He actually competed, and he was a professional race car and motorcycle racer. So he tried in any film he was in to do as many of the stunts himself as possible, as many as the insurance company would let him do, basically. Or his wife. <laughs> and like, yeah, just to draw an anecdote uh, from The Great Escape, 
where he has that famous motorcycle chase. They didn't let him film the big jump scene, but they basically let him film everything else because he was a better rider than any of the stuntmen they had on set. They said they actually used some editing tricks so that as McQueen is running away on the motorcycle, the German soldiers chasing after him are also McQueen <laughs> because he was that good. <laughs> But yes, we have the the two biggest co-stars of the film, the uh, 1968 Ford Mustang GT, which has become iconic simply because of this. And you also have the uh, Dodge Charger 440, which, if we're being honest, my opinion is actually the better car. <laughs> but they had the one disadvantage of not being driven by Steve McQueen. So, yeah, this was just a an incredibly well shot and edited because, yeah, they had those roads shut down. But at this point in 1968, they didn't have a lot of the fancy camera stuff they did they do today so they had cameramen just like literally hanging out of the backs of cars at, to get some of these shots they said they destroyed a couple of them just because they got run over <laughs> like, it was crazy got up to over 110 miles per hour during some of these chases it's absolutely insane but when you really look at it the way that it's handled it's not just you know pure action there are some great shots, some fantastic camera angles. You have that entire slow buildup leading up to it with the music in the background and just them slowly driving through the seats. You know, you see that shot with uh, the charger coming over the hill behind McQueen and he's seeing it in his rear view and how all of them in the cars are very slowly putting on their seatbelts because they know it's coming. <laughs> and then the minute they stomp on the gas, the music cuts out completely. The soundtrack for the rest of the chase is just squealing tires, roaring engines, and I'm gonna, I could talk about this for another half hour. It's fantastic. And the decision to stop the soundtrack during the scene was probably one of the best ones made in the show. I mean, it just makes it that much more real. Like you're watching something like live footage on TV that you'd see now kind of thing. It just... And, and because of how it was filmed, it just comes off. Again, it looks so bloody real. The angles are fantastic. And again, like you, it's it's one of those things where I look back at different movies that I've seen over the years with iconic car chases. And yeah, top of the pile. See, it's interesting because if I'm remembering correctly, uh, Yates actually wanted music in the car chase. And the composer for the film went, nah, no. <laughs> there's nothing I can do to match that. You're better off without it. So after the chase and the fiery explosion, the movie comes to its conclusion where, again, Bullet, this is where you show, see, he's not just, you know, an action cop. There's actual legitimate detective work going on here where they come to find out that the man that was killed was not actually Ross. It was somebody Ross had paid to basically take his place on the firing line so he could escape the country. They track him down to the airport and at the very end of the film, like one of the last shots McQueen is in is the only time in the entire movie he actually draws and fires his gun. So it definitely defies a lot of conventions of what you would think of when, you know, you, oh, you have this movie, it's about a cop and criminals and car chases and explosions, but very little of that is gratuitous like we would see today. Today, oh God, there'd be people getting shot, helicopters crashing, it would be absolutely ludicrous, but it's a very dramatic way yeah. of getting the action across that makes this film so special. Yep. I agree. All right, then. Moving to the final film, 1974, The Towering Inferno. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, 71 from critics, 72 from viewers. Eh, 
put it a little higher than that, honestly. But this is one of those mo- movies that has such fascinating behind-the-scenes stuff. To begin with, it's actually based on two completely different books. The first one is The Tower by Richard Martin Stern, and the second one is The Glass Inferno by Thomas N. Scorsia, where 20th Century Fox and Warner Brothers independently bought the rights to the two books and then quickly realized that both studios were basically filming the exact same movie because the two books were so similar in their storylines. So they decided in something that I didn't know studios ever did to co-produce the film. They put together their budgets. That's why you had this ludicrous all-star cast they were able to get together with the decision that uh, 20th Century Fox would earn all of the U.S. box office and Warner Brothers would bring in all of the international box office. And I guess it worked out because, I mean, the movie is pretty fun. I, like, I really enjoy it. And it won numerous Oscars for Best Cinematography, Best Editing, Best and Best Music Original Song for We May Never Love You Like This Again. So... Pretty interesting behind-the-scenes stuff before we even get into the cast. Like, it's that, it's that cool studio stuff that's going on. Yeah. Because this took place in the 70s when disaster movies were really big box office. You had Earthquake. You had the Poseidon Adventure. Poseidon Adventure is a movie I absolutely love personally. And it's funny watching this, you know, from a more critical standpoint instead of just for entertainment value. And I realized just how much disaster movies kind of parallel the same formula as a slasher horror film. Of, you know, you have the evil, you know, mean characters eventually getting their comeuppance in some of the most horrible ways imaginable. You have the the feeling that nobody at any point is safe. How just when you think someone has escaped danger, they're immediately back in it. It's just interesting to see that the the two movie-making formulas run so close to each other. See, I remember this when I was a kid because I saw – the Poseidon Adventure as well as this when I was still young and um, and I remember watching it and it's that same kind of formula for both of them where the tension is building not because of a script formula so much as the ship is full, filling with water or the building is getting the, the fire is going up and up or down so it, that's what keeps building the tension and then you just have everything else going on with the people trying to save themselves kind of thing. So the that kind of formula – and again, it's not a formula. It's just that's a reality of those types of situation builds a natural tension that is entirely believable. And what's funny is that I haven't watched these movies again since I was a kid except for now this one. And I'm, I'm going to have to watch Poseidon again because I haven't seen that in forever. And I'd like to see – not just in how well it holds up, but just to, to again bring back that that feeling of tension that I had from when I was a kid watching these. Because again, when you're young watching these, fire and drowning are things that you can actually relate to. You can actually understand and grasp that tension, and, and, it, and it holds you. And fire being something that's so prevalent a fear for for everybody that we, it's a natural thing. We understand it. So again, this holds because of that and then you tack on top of that the brilliant freaking acting from damn near everybody and it still is such a fun movie to watch yeah i've probably haven't seen the poseidon adventure and i'd say probably close to 15 years but there are still scenes and shots in that movie that i will never forget yeah 
Same. Like there's just some fantastic filmmaking going on there. Yeah. Not to say that it's not here as well. Like taking that whole, you know, you never know who's going to be safe thought in a near the end of the film, you have the Mrs. Mueller, the the art teacher that Paul Newman's character rescues and it's a significant chunk of the film of him going through the 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 building through trouble after trouble to save this woman and these two kids and just when you think they're safe and they get on that elevator building blows up the elevator gets knocked off its track and she flies out the window in one of my favorite shots of the film because <laughs> she flies out the window and smacks like three or four windows on the way down like it's hilarious but it's so shocking because you had a weird sense of hilarious this episode i, I know i know <laughs> because psychologically we've we filed her away of okay she's past the danger in the film she is now safe so like it's just it's that formula that works so well for these movies <laughs> What's wrong with you? I listen. <laughs> okay, I didn't think it was uh, hilarious. I thought it was pretty terrible myself. Oh, it was horrifying. But but, hor- but like the way it was shot, where with like the rag doll just no, bouncing no, you around can't on make this way right. You can't. You're a terrible human being. I am. I've never stopped. <laughs> awesome. But getting back into some more behind the scenes stuff, how originally. Steve McQueen was cast in the role of the architect, uh, Doug Roberts, and Ernest Borgnine was the fire chief, uh, Michael O'Halloran. And reading through the script, McQueen, you know, saw the stuff they had planned for O'Halloran and went, you know, this is a role I would like better. You know, I get to fly from helicopters, dangle off the sides of buildings. I want to do this. I don't want to be some stupid architect. So he went to the director in the studios and went, I'll play the police chief. If you can get somebody who's Archie. as much of a star as I am to play the architect. Well, many would people would say that's a mistake in retrospect because, well, in this era, there was pretty much one other star as big as McQueen, and that was Paul Newman. So they brought him in, and the tension was immediate. They said McQueen poured over the script, making sure each character had the exact same number of lines. When you look at the credits and the movie posters, they have Paul Newman's name on the top right and Steve McQueen's name on the bottom left. So that if you're reading it vertically, Newman comes first. But if you're reading it horizontally, McQueen comes first. Like, it's, it kind of paints him to be a pretty bad guy because it's – Newman later regretted oh, taking yeah. on the role because even though theoretically they were co-leads and equal – the police chief doesn't show up until almost an hour into the movie. So when they say, yes, they have a similar number of lines, Newman gets most of his lines into the, into the film before McQueen even shows up. So once McQueen's character shows up, he then dominates a lot of the film, at least from Newman's perspective. Like personally, I thought Newman's role was a lot more even throughout and he had just as many great hero scenes as McQueen did. But Newman regretted this decision to the end of his days. said there was one role he always regretted. It was this one. I Yeah, I, I'm more of the opinion like you are that I thought it was – well, it's obviously a fair split. They counted the freaking lines. So it's just different at different points in the movie that they – they shine essentially kind of thing and i thought that yeah mcqueen has got these scenes where he's dangling from the helicopter and all these heroic moments with a lot more authority because he's a chief but newman's character was just as important in different kinds different ways and 
when you're seeing him like going through, when you're seeing him in that stairwell, which he did all the stunts for, when you're seeing him in there kind of thing, like that's, that sticks with you, that scene. You remember that for years later because of how gripping it was. So I thought it was a, an even split. And then, of course, when you get to the end, Jesus, by the end, those final scenes, you can't say that one is more important than the other. I, I would even go so far as to say that Newman has the better character. Like he's the one that actually goes through an arc of being mm-hmm. the one that designed this building and – when he finds out that things weren't to his specifications, he's very righteous and righteously indignant about it. He's very upset. So he's the one that without his character, everybody would have died regardless of how great of work the, the fire crew did. So honestly, like again, from my point of view, I'd say Newman's character was more important than McQueen's throughout, even despite Newman himself feeling differently. Yeah, yeah. But then looking at the rest of the cast, we have uh, William Holden as James Duncan, the guy who financed and built the building. Very interesting character there of when he calls up, we get the phone call. Uh, the building's on fire. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> you, know, can, you know, so tied up in perception and wanting people to feel that the building is you know, safe and fireproof, that he's not going to stop the party on the 130th floor just because of the fire on the 79th. You know, they'll, they'll sort that out. That's what the building's designed for. You have Faye Dunaway as uh, Susan Franklin, Robert's fiance, another very interesting character. Robert's wanting to basically move away from the city, her wanting to stay an interesting dynamic between the two of them that in the face of danger, you know, they finally realize both what they wanted. Yet Fred Astaire yeah. as Harley Claiborne, this con man, a, a very bad con man, but he was fantastic in his role. And, uh, he was uh, trying to con Miss Mueller, like I said, the art teacher. And just like the scene at the end where they hand him the cat, like I was heartbroken. <laughs> <laughs> you also had uh, Richard Chamberlain as Roger Simmons, the electrical engineer, the one who was at least directly responsible for a number of the problems here. He also played uh, Duncan's son-in-law, so that he had O.J. Simpson as Harry Jennigan, the security chief, and Robert Vaughn coming back to to co-star along with McQueen as Senator Parker, again, <laughs> playing that politician role, although this one, he was perfectly fine. Like yeah. He was, he was a, a, a voice of reason. He was a nice sense of authority. He's the one that kind of held everything together. You know, he, as a politician, he could have escaped from the building first and nobody would have thought anything of it, but he stayed behind. So, I mean, comparing this role to his role in Bullet, I mean, that, that would have helped his political yeah. career, if you ask me. <laughs> yeah. OJ is the security guy, though. That was the one thing that took me out of the show. Which you you obvious- almost... They had no control over that, obviously. Yeah. You but, almost forget how much of a star he was in movies back in the 70s. But yeah, you're going, he's a security chief? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Who's going to die? In retrospect, well, in retrospect, there's a lot about this movie that's uncomfortable. I mean, especially there's a tower on fire and everybody's dying. Like, there's a lot of bits at the end, especially when McQueen is saying, you know, one day you people will learn how to build one of these safely. And it's like... You know, in today's day and age, there's a lot of, about this movie that's pretty uncomfortable. Well, but at the, the same time, that, the fact that the books were built or based on the uh, the Twin Towers, and of course, we're, we just rounded off the anniversary for that. When you're watching this, it really hammers that home. Yeah, it's as like was nobody paying attention to this movie. <laughs> It actually does have a very valid message. 
in in spite of all the you know the theatrics and the adventure and the action and all that there 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 are some lessons that we as human beings can learn from this film but overall yeah i I really like this movie. I'm, like I said, I've always been into disaster type films and I love movies with ensemble casts where you get to see all these actors coming together and all these various roles, like, even the cameo roles. Like we said, Fred Astaire is, had a very small role, but he was one of my favorite characters in the movie. Yeah, he so was So it's just, it's just really cool to see so many things coming together and the end effect was pretty fun. And as I said, it's an interesting way to tie the whole McQueen-Newman story back together at the end. Yeah. So overall, again, uh, McQueen, I love him as an actor. Like again, when I look back at this era, it's kind of Steve McQueen and Bruce Lee. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> Paul, Paul Newman's somewhere in the discussion, but he he's not at the top just because. I mean, it's it's the type of stuff I like. It's the type of characters that I can identify with, and he'll always be one of my favorite actors. I honestly, again, like I said, it's when I look back at those Sunday afternoons watching movies with the old man kind of thing. There's Newman, there's McQueen. And, and so I can, I, I can, I definitely agree. Yeah, there you go. Vince's tier list for the sixties and seventies, Steve McQueen, Bruce Lee and Godzilla. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that's going to wrap us up here for this episode of popcorn Ronin. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you can find us at popcornronin.com, feel free to leave us a comment. Tell us what other McQueen movies you enjoyed or some other actors of the era that you feel, you know, are deserving of some credits. I'm always up for looking at other great films of the time. It was a very interesting time for filmmaking as a whole. A lot of great actors, a lot of great directors. I'm sure we'll be revisiting it again sooner rather than later. Right, Roger? I'm trying to decide when we're going to do our Great Escape episode, but it should be fun. And I'm thinking maybe a few down the line, but yeah, I'm really looking forward to that episode. All right. So thanks again, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next time. TV and anime reviews, please make sure to stop by popcornronin.com and leave the guys your thoughts in the comments. If you'd like to hear more from Roger and Vince, check out their comic book informer podcast and Internet Dragons TV gaming videos. And lastly, thanks to Manelli Jamal for the show's theme music. We encourage everyone to check out his site, manellijamal.com, or find him on iTunes and help support this incredible musician by picking up his CDs. Mm-hmm.